morning, everybody. Well, I've been up since 4.45 because uh, I have a three-year-old daughter. So it's, I guess it's still morning, but it feels like afternoon, but it's still morning. This is an amazing thing. Uh, so I think I will need the Holy Spirit today to be uh, excited and uh, to keep focused. I'm just going to pray that God's Spirit illuminates us as we open the Word together. Uh, today, Colossians 3. I am going to go back and read a little bit of Colossians 2. Because our verse starts with a therefore, and you can never start preaching from a therefore, right? Because it's like me starting, on the basis of, and everyone goes, on the basis of what? On the basis of, you need to know on the basis of what. So we'll go back to the end of Colossians 2 and just see, what is he basing uh, his argument on in Colossians 3, 1 through 7? I think that will give us kind of a lens to look at the scriptures and to understand more of what's happening. And, We'll just pray that the Holy Spirit's with us as we do that. Lord God, as we sit under the teaching of your word today, let it be by the power of the Holy Spirit, the living word for us again. Not just uh, a book report on revelation that happened in the past, but in the midst of this congregation of uh, people, this body of yours here, I ask that your spirit would work, that it would work in our hearts, that it would it would burn within our hearts as we hear the truth of your word, even as we just heard it read. And then it wouldn't be uh, something that seems, oh, we've heard this a million times and it's just human ideas, but it would be for us, as it is, the living word of God. And that it would change us fundamentally today. That it would not only comfort us in our eternal salvation, but it would, that it would convict us of sin and move us to greater holiness. And not only individually, but as your people, the church, the body of Christ for whom you died and rose again and in whom we have the forgiveness of sins and redemption. And we thank you in Jesus' name today and ask that your spirit would illuminate the minds of our hearts and be with the words that I speak this morning from your holy scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So I want to go back uh, first and just read the end of Colossians 2. So if, if you don't have a Bible open, don't worry about it. You can just listen. I'll read from Colossians 2, 16 to 23, and just set us up for what we're going to talk about today. So hear, uh, hear the word of God. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up beyond reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And that verse is going to be quite important. From whom the whole body, is nourished. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that perish as they are used according to the precepts and teachings. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then verse 3 starts. And in Greek, of course, there weren't chapters and verses. It would have just been one running commentary the whole way through. 
right? And there would have been nothing to distinguish. We're moving from chapter 2 to a new section called, whatever it says in your Bible, put on the new self, is what it says in the ESV and something similar in, in the NIV. So there would have been no indication of that. It would have just flown right into, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, this is one of those texts, and I don't know, maybe when you first became a Christian, someone gave you a Bible, or maybe that was how you were evangelized. You, you got a Bible, and you read it, and you think, I'm going to read through the Bible. It's going to be a great experience. And it's a hard book to read. It isn't a self-evident book. You open the beginning of Genesis and, and these strange stories about how creation happened. By the time you get to Leviticus, every bird under the sun is getting killed and burnt. And God's cosmic nostrils are saying, this is a good scent to me. And if you're not coming from a Christian background, this is very strange stuff to read. It's not like reading Time magazine or the, the newspaper or something. It needs to be unpacked and you start to realize maybe the lens that I'm coming at the scriptures with. I think this is true, by the way, for folks who have been Christians for a very long time. We assume we know what it means because it's the Bible. It's the man, you know, every man's book, every woman's book. We can come and, and know what it means. But we soon realize that 30,000 plus Protestant denominations and growing has resulted from each and every individual coming to the Bible and saying, I'll tell you what it means. No, I'll tell you what it means. No, it means this, it means this, it means this. And it's actually a really hard book to understand. Sometimes we think we know what it's saying until we come and look more closely at it and we realize we're coming at it from a totally different perspective. And the way I'm looking at it is maybe not the way that Paul intended it or Jesus intended it. And I think that's a little bit of the case that happens with Colossians 3 and it happens all the time in Holy Scripture. And I was reminded of this about perspective this week when, see, I walk, I live in Tuong up in the hills and I also have a very large driveway. In fact, it's so steep that I can't even drive the car up it, so we have to park on the street. So we have this massive driveway we can't use, which is, which is great for $600, $600 a week renting that. That's uh, fantastic. No driveway. Um, but Tuong's a great place to live. We've lived here now for a year, uh, as of yesterday, coming from Phoenix, Arizona. So we've been here for a year. And it's great because I walk into Trinity College, which is good exercise, time for me to just unwind uh, on the way home. And then uh, on the way to work as well. And I have this ritual in the morning when I leave the house after my kids stop screaming, because that's how fantastic I am, that it's devastating when I leave. Um, after, after we get over that and I say, we'll be okay, children, for I shall return. Um, I start walking down the hill and I hear my son, because we have an old, it's an old Queenslander, you hear him thumping across, running to the window, even when you're halfway down the street, and I can see him in the window waving. And so I turn on, this is such a precious moment, and all the sappy things going through, this won't last forever. It's like they say, the years go by. And so I turn and I'm going. <laughs> you know, and I'm doing all this stuff, and I'm dancing, and some days I'll do different things and do the running. So I do this big wave, this big, hey, Liam. And he's waving to me, and then I start to turn around and leave, and I hear, hey, mate. And it's my neighbor who had been walking back from the store. 
And he goes, hey. And I didn't realize that he had seen me waving and has just assumed I was waving to him. Keep in mind that this is how I'm waving. Hey. Hey, buddy. And so to him, he's going, this guy, I knew he was a little weird, but now he's really strange. And my neighbors are very gracious, but I didn't understand that he was just trying to get my attention. Like, hey, what do you want? You're waving to me like a freak at 8.30 in the morning. And it's, it's kind of that thing when we come to this scripture, because we come to it a lot of times thinking, we know what it means. It's telling me and you as individuals, here's how you individually should live. But the first thing I want to do is call you to an ecclesial reading of this. A lot of times people say, why do I have to have the church if it's me and Jesus have such a great relationship? As soon as I get other people involved, the whole thing becomes more complex. It becomes more difficult. There's all sorts of disagreements and personality clashes, theological problems. Why don't we just have Jesus been at the church? Well, first of all, because Jesus founded the church. It is his body, and he calls us to be a part of the church, so that's one reason. But one of the other reasons is if you look at Colossians, and I'm just going to work down in an expository way through this. It says, if you have been raised with Christ, and as a, well, I'm from North America, most of you are Australian, but as a postmodern person, um, I would look at that and say, this is addressed to me. But in, in the original Greek, it's addressed to you, plural. Right? This is the epistle to the Colossians, right? not just to John Frederick, or to you, or to you, or to you. And so he's actually talking about is the group together. And so for Paul, there's not this individual category of like, hey, it's okay if you don't want to belong to the whole, as long as you personally have a relationship with Jesus. What he actually does is he calls people out of individualism into integrated co-communion together. Let me just keep going with this and, and, and see where it takes us. Seek the things that are above all y'all, as the Texans would say, or use. I hear some people in, in parts of Queensland will say use. That's also used in New Jersey. People say that. Use guys. Anyway, um, Set your minds, again, plural, your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And here's where it gets most profoundly powerful for us as an individualistic society. For you, plural, have died. And your, again, plural, your, you can't see it in the English, but in Greek it's plural, your life, singular. So the pronoun your is plural and life is, is singular. And so what that's actually saying is when you died through faith and baptism, to your selfishness, to your sin, to your self-sufficiency, so-called. You died to, I'm an individual apart from everybody else. I'm defined by who I'm not. I'm me, and there's no other me. And I'm a self-sufficient, autonomous person, almost to the extent of, I don't need anybody else. Which is a myth, right? Nobody lives that way. Do you grow all your own groceries? Probably not. You have a, you know, some of you have gardens, which is great, but... We rely on each other in a general way in society, so it's a myth anyway that we could live that way. Um, but we sort of operate in that sense. He's saying, you, plural, have died, and your life, singular, exists now as you exist in Christ. And what that means is we share together in the life of Christ as he is risen, seated at the right hand of the Father. There is no more you and you and you and you as individuals only. There is only you as an individual in relationship to other people. See, before you were an individual defined by who you were not. Now you're a person defined by who you're in relationship with. 
Let me just unpack that for a second, because you might not think of yourselves in that way. As I said, individuals think of themselves in terms of who they're not. I'm not you, I'm me. A person defines themselves by who they're in relationship to. So if I said to my son, I'm not your dad, I'm an individual, you'd say, that's a preposterous thing to say. I am the father of Liam, the father of Zoe, the husband of Tara, right? I am a member of this church. I am a son of God, and you are a son or daughter of God. We define ourselves by relationship with other people, and that defines our identity. That's different than saying, I'm an individual separate from everybody else. We like that sort of individuality because it's easy. And then our Christianity can become a product that we fill up on Sundays and take away and is self-sufficient. It's about me and Jesus. But as soon as you get baptized, there is no me and Jesus only. There is only us together and Jesus. And so we must fight for the church and we must fight with grace and with truth, but we must fight with ourselves sometimes to say it's worth it to fight for the church because it is the body of Christ. And together we partake in the resurrection life of Jesus even now. It's a powerful thing. When he goes on then to give these ex uh, ethical exhortations that are going to come up, it's not just about you individually. It's about who you are as part of this community. So a lot of times when you become a parent and you have Facebook, I don't know if people still use that. I, I hear the younger generations use Instagram and whatnot. I'm not interested in that. So I'm on Facebook. And what tends to happen is the bragging that used to happen in person now happens digitally. So my son has done this and is the swimming captain. And, my, and, and you see people kind of bragging about their children. Well, did you know that, that my son got a scholarship? Oh, really? Well, my son's the swimming captain and got a scholarship. And we start to build ourselves up by, by that sort of thing. So I think that um, that's now even in the digital realm as, as it is in the physical realm. But, you get this sense that the world is off and needs a new way to live. And even ourselves, we find fault within ourselves. Listen, listen to this. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. First thing I'm just going to say is the New Testament and Jesus himself calls us to a radical new way to live. Sometimes as the church we say, oh, it's the great suggestion of Jesus. Right? Like he, he saved us by faith. And look, we can sign up for the obedience package if we want to, but that's optional. We can get, you know, the low-grade kind of uh, broadband service. We don't have to sign up for the uh, high-speed high Wi-Fi. But Jesus says, uh, and Paul says here, put to death. This is serious stuff, right? And so he's calling us to a life of holiness. He's not saying, look, if, 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 if you've got the time to do it, just go ahead and try and put these things aside. He says, put them to death, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, if you're like me, you'll go through these and be like, which ones do I do? <laughs> and, and you'll notice the ones that other people struggle with, and you'll be like, I have less. Or, therefore, I have more of the life of the risen Christ in me. But actually, their sin, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, puffs up the whole low. And your sin it's not just about you messing up, which it is. It's about you. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to the one body of Christ 
connected to the life of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, who's seated at the right hand of the Father. So your struggle is my struggle. My struggle is your struggle. There is no me without us anymore. You see? And so if we get this sense of which ones are my problems and how can you and you and you help me deal with my problems, that's part of it. But it's kind of a, it's kind of a narcissistic way to look at sanctification. Sanctification is being set apart as a people. Holiness is being consecrated as a people to become holy together. We need each other. We actually can't live out this ethic apart from each other. It's a beautiful thing. It's also a scary thing, especially if you're introverted or just generally socially awkward, as I am. Because um, people notice that sort of thing. But there's room for every sort of weirdo in the church, isn't there? There is. There is. Thank you for welcoming this American weirdo into the midst. You are a welcoming church, by the way. That would be one of the top things I would say. Is there not crazy, weird, subcultural Christians at Tawang, but they're serious about following Jesus, and they're welcoming? I think that's a beautiful thing. That's a great start, at least. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. It's easy to hear, and again, it's a big call, but the idea is, we as a group have to be sharpening each other in these ways. And so we can think about what, what are we doing as a community to sharpen the extent to which we're being renewed in the image of God? Or are we thinking of how am I doing with Jesus? And how are you doing with Jesus? And then we go away as, as individuals and we come back or are we have people. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. Now here's where I'm going to get cranky. I'm not generally a cranky person, but I sometimes do get grouchy. So I will get grouchy, but it's a, it's a gracious grouchiness. It's for the good of the church. Um, you'll thank me later. Do not, it says you've put off your old self, and the NIV has this, and the ESV, and most modern English translations have this. And that's an okay translation. But the, the Greek underneath, if you look at the little thing in the, next to the self, Usually in the Bible, underneath it'll say the old man. Right? And so what it literally says is take off the old man with his practices, not its practices. Take off the old man with his practices and put on the new man who is being renewed according to the image of the creator. So what's actually being said is all y'all, this is important, it's all plural, you all take off the singular old man. Who's the old man? Like, it's not my dad. Sometimes in the States, I'd be like, ah, the old man told me I've got to be home in time for dinner. That's not the old man. Well, it is, but not this old man. The old man that we take off is Adam and his ways. And so the Bible, and Paul in particular, whenever he talks about the old man and the new man, he's not just talking about my individual character and life and purpose and meaning apart from everyone else, because I'm so important that this has to be the way that we look at life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you all were under the ways of sin, which is represented by Adam. This is how the Hebrews thought. They thought of corporate representation by a singular individual. Right? So they would say things like, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's not a statement about individuals. That's a statement about whole nations and who the covenant promise goes through. And everyone's subsumed under Abraham at other times in Galatians. In Romans 5, we have something similar that's happening here. You have 
Adam brought sin and judgment and death into the world, and who kind of fixes that situation? The new man, Jesus. So Paul is thinking of us all existing in one old way, one old humanity, characterized by Adam. He's saying, take off all y'all, Adam, with his ways. And y'all got to put on the new man, Jesus Christ. And again, what that does is it funnels all of us into one. The gospel is a story about how the many become one in Christ, not how about the many still remain individual yet in the same locale together. You see what I'm saying? You died to that old way when, you're, when you had faith and were baptized so that you can become an integrated co-communicant, co-enlivened by the resurrection life of Jesus through hearing his word, through communion, the sacrament, and through the fellowship of communion. It's a powerful, powerful thing. The church exists because through it, Jesus calls the world to himself, yes, but also because in it and through its worship, we are sanctified, and it says, renewed in the image of the creator. So we all take off the old Adam, and we put on the new man, Jesus. It's not just about my own existential individual being. It's about all of us dying to selfishness and self-centeredness and coming in to exist for the sake of the other, through the other, with the other, as a community. And that reinvigorates the ability to love. A few more things. Um, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. You notice that it says here. Here there is not any of those distinctions. And what he's really talking about is, when we come together as the church, not just in the building or on Sunday morning, but as the people of God through the ages, here and across the world, that is where those distinctions no longer apply. You can be rich or poor. You can be a slave or free. Galatians 3 says you can be a male or a female. Do you realize how radical that would have been in the first century? To say, doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. Yes, it did matter in the ancient world. That was a man's world, right? It was men who led in the ancient world. And what did Paul say? The church doesn't roll with that sort of ethos. The church contradicts that by saying, when you come to the church, it doesn't matter if you're a male. That would have been a radical thing to say. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or free. Well, in Paul's world, it did matter if you were a slave or free, but it didn't matter to the church. They were equal. They were one in Christ. They both had taken off the old man and had put on the new man together. They were formed together to be a new body. And then the clothing metaphor sort of continues. He's like, okay, strip off all these old things, which by the way, this is all kind of framed in a baptism sort of motif, where you take off these things, you're washed, and you put on a new garment. This was a baptismal text in the ancient church that was used often. Put on, again, plural, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and the Greek for this, instead of compassion, would be the guts of compassion. The King James translates it, the bowels of Christ, um, meaning, I really care. I really care in the depth of my being. Um, that's the kind of compassion God is calling us. So it's not just a sort of pity, uh, uninterested, kind of self-interested pity, but, but a deep, gut-wrenching compassion, not only for the church, but for the world. Powerful. Put that on and put on kindness and put on humility and put, put on meekness and put on patience. Now, he's just said to you, take off Adam and put on Christ. Who is meek? Who is the one who is patience par excellence? 
who is the one who is love and compassion. If you do a word study, all of those virtues describe God and Christ elsewhere in the, in the Bible. And so when he says, take off Adam and put on Christ, now he's telling you in the metaphor, here's what the garments look like. They look like the garment of love. They look like peace and patience. And he's just further expanding on what it means to put on Christ. Again, it's a beautiful passage until you meet people, right? I always find that the idea of Christianity is a lot easier than the living out of it. Just to be honest, I mean, we could say, like, this is the most glorious, beautiful, terrifying, crazy, impossible thing that I've ever seen. And it's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he gets, in, he gets a little bit more realistic. He says, bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint, who has a complaint against anyone in the Uniting Church, right? <laughs> There's no complaining. No, friends. It's all peace and bunny rabbits. Um, if one has a complaint against one another, blog against each other. If one has a complaint against one another, spew vitriol on Facebook to the extreme left and the extreme right. If one has a complaint against one another, get political in the church and start acting like the world does to win. One has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above everything, put on love, which binds it all together in perfect unity. And here's what I'm going to draw it to a close. Scholars disagree on, on how this love relates to the other virtues just mentioned. Some say it's like a love belt on the metaphorical clothing we're wearing. Which I'm like, that's kind of a weird viewed for me. It's like love is the belt that binds all the virtues in. Possibly. So we're like the body of Christ. We're all integrated into Christ. We're wearing these clothing elements and we've got a, we've got a love belt on. Okay. But actually I think, and I argue, recently I've argued in, in stuff that I've written that, hear, hear this out now, the Greek can be translated, love is the bond which leads to perfe uh, perfection. Love is the bond that we have with each other. It's not the bond that binds the other virtues together. The thing that the church has that makes us transformed and renewed in the image of Christ is love. Love is not a metaphorical belt that we're like, take a look at that. It's a love belt, right? Love is the thing that binds us together. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians where it says the bond of peace. The power of the Holy Spirit, Paul believes in his writings, is so profoundly mighty and so almighty and powerful that, that, to, that he is able to do this work which cannot be done in the world, which is to bind people who might not even necessarily have anything in common, who come from different tribes and tongues, who have different political philosophies, who fundamentally disagree sometimes on theological issues. Maybe you're a Baptist, maybe you came from the Presbyterian church. To take those people and bind them together by love. And not only just so people go, they'll know they're Christians by their love, Ooh, they're so nice. They're so pleasant. But to kind of help us weather the storm of a culture that hates Jesus. The culture loves the Jesus hippie Christ, who is like, be nice to one another, for that is the essence of true religion. And then he comes over here and says another pithy Zen statement that, you know, he's, he's barred from Confucius or something. 
The culture loves that Jesus. The culture hates the Jesus that says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus calls us to fundamentally something which is counter-cultural. It's not anti-culture. It's counter-cultural. There should be a church that says, we like some of the stuff you say, but we really protest other things. And we shouldn't be feeling like, oh, but we're loving. We're the church. Come on, we've got the love belt on. That what I'm saying is that as Christ brings us together, as he sanctifies us together, we're going to be what Stanley Harawas calls resident aliens in Australia. I already am sort of an alien on, the, on this planet and on Australia. Um, but, but most of you are residents. Most of you are citizens. And more and more and more as the culture moves away from its Christendom past, you're going to be seen as strange. You're going to be hated by all people on account of the name of Jesus. Look, don't shoot the messenger. Jesus told me this. I know it's not good PR for the church, but actually, as the church grows together in love, yeah, you're going to have to weather the storm of a culture that hates some of the things you're saying. So what do we do? We get angry. We get rageful. I know. We'll get malicious and slander them. Then we come back to Colossians and be like, ah, dang it, we can't do that. Okay. Um, and anyway, that would kill us. What we do is forgive. What we do is love. What we do is call people to a life of radical discipleship and love that says, the earth walks in the way of the old man. The world walks in the way of Adam. And that leads to futility. And it leads to death. And at the last breath of the person who has no relationship to Jesus, that's it for them. There's nothing. That's the way the world thinks. But the church says, there is life. And not only is there spiritual eternal life forever, there is resurrection life with Jesus that you participate in now. Only it's not just you singular, it's you plural. To the extent that you plug in and pour into Christ's strange, hurting, broken body, to the extent that you run into the brokenness and not flee from it, to the extent that you lead boldly, the church will be built up. You will be strengthened you will be made more joyful even in the midst of your struggles and the world will meet Jesus and be transformed. And it will happen because of the Holy Spirit. So I'm pretty excited about Jesus this morning. Um, my neighbors think I'm strange already and now that they've seen me wave to them in strange ways, they think I'm strange and they're going to think I'm even weirder when I tell them more about Jesus. What I want to suggest to you is that when we come to Scripture, um, we come to a call, a radical call to belong. We have a world that's broken and separated, a world that says you don't belong unless you're like us. But Jesus' message doesn't, is not contingent upon us all dressing the same or all holding the same political views or even agreeing on every issue. Jesus calls us to radical holiness that transforms the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And without it, we have nothing. We have nothing. And so the church is worth it all. The church is worth everything. Not this building, not just this denomination, but the fellowship of believers. Without you and you and you and all of us and you without me, we have nothing. We have nothing to offer the world. We have nothing to hope in. But because of each other and our life in Jesus, we have everything and we have it now. We don't have to wait till we die to live. We pray that God's will would come true on earth as it is in heaven. And I'll just end with this. Shane Claiborne, a guy from the States, often talks about, we often talk about life after death, but what about life before death? 
So the earth, the world does not have to hear the gloom and doom message of fire and brimstone and this hard life as a Christian. The world can hear the exuberant, joyful, powerful, unending, death-defeating story of Jesus Christ and see that as joy now in the present. Because eternal life has already started now. The resurrection life of Jesus, we participate in now. What happens when we die is a continuation of the relationship and journey we've already been on. And you and I together are part of that journey. Thanks be to God. Let's pray about the gospel this morning and what Jesus has done. Thanks, Lord, for this church and so many interesting different people. Thanks, Lord, that you call us not to uniformity but to true unity, which says, even the person that I'm different than, I will love with a self-sacrificing love. Help us to pursue that more. Teach us ways to pursue that more in our families, in our church. We want to be that people here as a part of your body. And thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to wait until we die to live, but that we live now by the vitality and death-defeating power of the resurrection life of Jesus. That when we participate in this communion together as a church, this fellowship, we participate in the very life of God. Thanks for our kids. Thanks for our families. Thanks for our friends. Make us a beacon of light to this place that although they may be challenged by Jesus, they would be captivated by his call to everlasting life now and the gospel's power to defeat sin and Satan and death. This day and always, in Jesus' name, amen.